There's a Facebook post recently that I kept uh, seeing. It was a couple weeks back, and I'm, I'm just going to step on some toes, obviously, because probably some of you posted it. But it just it was one of those that rubbed me the wrong way, and uh, you'll probably recognize it. But it was something to the effect that you know you could you can be in church and not be a, a Christian, and you can be a Christian and not be in church. Something something kind of along those lines, and um, yeah, I mean. On the one hand, we would admit people can sit in church just as people can go to a barn and not become a horse or a cow. You can sit in church not necessarily become a Christian. That's all, that's all true. But it's that sort of idea, that sort of corresponding thought that I felt like the post engendered. I, I didn't comment on any of them. I just tried to ignore it and not think about it. But the implication is kind of like, well, you know, church, that's, like, um, that's almost superfluous. Being with the church. You, know, you can be a Christian. You can just fly solo. Hey, if you want the church, it's kind of an optional kind of thing if you like that sort of thing. Jesus gave his blood for the church. He purchased the church. He loved. Is it optional for Jesus that, that, that we just sort of take or leave the church? And that's, so you can tell it rankled me a little bit, right? Is that pretty obvious at this point? You look at Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. You're a quiet group today. Uh, it, it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The word encourage, hear what I'm saying here, because it's going to keep this is going to be thematic. It's a thematic thing. The word encourage in the book of Hebrews here is the same word that we're going to see in our passage used three times. Three times in one little, just, just that little bit that Rick read, he might have felt like it was a lot. But in that, little, in that little portion there, three times the word is used. And we're going to look at that. I saw it in my study and I thought, hey, there must be something to this. So then I started reading the commentaries. And then sure enough, the commentaries are like, yeah, Paul really is hitting the word Encourage and encouragement here quite strongly. So that's the idea. That's the big idea today. Prioritize the encouragement of the church. The church for which Christ shed his blood. His bride for whom he laid down his life. That should be the place where we seek encouragement. That should be the place where we give encouragement. That should be a priority to us. And I think uh, many, for many Christians it, it, it fails to be that or it's been that, but then it kind of wanes. We want to keep that priority. I'm going to give you four encouragement priorities here. First of all, encourage the church habitually. Encourage the church habitually. It says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, there's that word, um, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There's that word again. A lot of travel happening here. I know you, you, some of you probably love geography. I know one or two of you that have actually have expressed that, that you love geography. But most don't, so I'm not going to spend too much, too much time there. The, the point was, Paul had been at Ephesus. You remember the whole, it was a miraculous time. The, the miracles weren't just your run-of-the-mill ordinary miracles. They were extraordinary miracles. And God did incredible things through Paul. And he was there for two years, and he preached. And people came to the Lord. And then you had the whole pushback from the darkness where you had um, Demetrius and the other artisans of Artemis saying, great is, Ar-. you remember that whole part? We just covered it, yeah. So that, that whole thing has, has, uh, has gone by. 
And uh, before long, Paul leaves Ephesus, but he calls for the disciples. Why does he call for the disciples? Are you on to me now? You see where this is going? Why does he call for them? He calls to encourage them. You saw that coming, right? He calls them, he calls them to encourage them. And the Greek word here that, that's being used, which was also in the, in the book of Hebrews, it's the word parakaleo, parakaleo, which is very, like if you learn Greek, it's going to be one of those really early words that you learn. It's in the Gospel of John used of the paraclete, that is the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Huh? Sounding familiar? But the, but the idea of the verb here is, is a very big range of meanings, like when you use it many times in the gospel, it simply means to beg. Strange, right? It just means to beg someone or implore them. But then it also means to come along when they're grieving and comfort them. It also means to encourage them. It also means to exhort and admonish and instruct. That's a big word, isn't it? You can... Drive a whole lot of freight right into the word encourage or parakaleo here. Which one of those do you think Paul was probably doing in the case of the Ephesians of, those, of that range? Yes, every, thank you. That was, that was the right answer. Everything, all, all of what you see in that word is there. It's, it's, it's much similar to the way when a pastor comes to a text and he brings it from the pulpit, his intention, one hopes, and, and, and I believe this is true for most of us that get up and do this kind of thing. It's like, man, I, I want to plead. I want to urge. I want to beg. I want to, I want to encourage, but I want to comfort. And I also want, but I don't want to, you know, I guess some exhortation probably needed there. Lots of instruction. It's the whole idea idea that the church needs that. That is Paul's habit. It's his pattern. He leaves Ephesus after encouraging them. He sails westward across the Aegean between Asia Minor and Greece, starts back down in Macedonia at Philippi, works his way down toward Greece. And then Luke tells us, and this all happens in a very short number of words, drum roll. Um, Yeah, you ready? When he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Do you see how that's working out there? Are you seeing how this is something that Paul just does? If you had to describe, what was Paul's ministry like? Now, we've seen before that it was strengthening the churches was a verb that was used, that he would go and he would strengthen them. Here we have this this thematic idea of him habitually trying to encourage the church. Now, I'm not making up this, uh, this, this thing at all, this habitual part um, for Paul, but the question really that you would rightly ask is, to what extent is this required of us? Because we're not apostles. And if you think you're an apostle, you're wrong, because you're not. <laughs> None of us are in, in, in the biblical sense of, of the apostles. We are not uh, apostles. But you're saying, but I'm not even a pastor, so maybe I don't really need to encourage. Maybe that's not my gift. Maybe I'm not supposed to do that. Well, you know, here's the interesting thing. You go back to that passage in Hebrews, and it says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So on the one hand, what, what is the habit that some people fall into? Not meeting together. Not encouraging. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? You need the church. That should, not the bad habit of not meeting, but rather the implied, the habit of meeting, of coming together, and we need encouragement. Why? Because the day is coming. The day is coming. That evil, the, the, the evil day, if you will, uh, is coming, and of course, then the day of the Lord will come. 
Before I move off this first priority, I want to show you something kind of neat. Can I show you neat things? All right, this, to me, this is kind of neat. It does fit with the encouragement. I think it fits. It's in verse 4. And uh, you may have just thought, oh, that's like the genealogies and stuff in Scripture. That's just a list of names. But I want you to look at these people and just think, put on your thinking cap, and see if you notice anything about these people. Uh, so Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. Did you, are you picking up on what's being laid down there at all? Do you see something kind of emerging there? I don't know if you see this or, or not, but what's going on there, Paul is on his way back with these guys. These are his co-workers. He's going back to Jerusalem that the church had been persecuted and oppressed in Jerusalem. You, you may know from other letters of Paul that during this third missionary journey, he's been raising support to take back to the church. So he's coming back with an offering for the church at Jerusalem. And with him, with him is this procession, this sort of retinue, if you will, of all of these, these men, these workers who represent whole regions. All of, What are these regions? These are the Asia. That's a, you're talking about Asia Minor. That's a very large area, you know? And you got Philippi. You got all these different places where Paul has been. And not only is he bringing this wealth back to the church to say, here, the church, the Gentile church is alive and well and thinks well of you and, and supports you. And we want to encourage you with this financial offering. But at the same time, there's all these guys he's bringing there too, going, look, look what God has done. I think that's kind of neat. That's kind of a wow or an encouragement factor. Secondly, be encouraged by the church. Be encouraged by the church. This won't take too terribly long. Uh, This pops up for us in verse 3, so I'm backing up to get there, but that's okay, right? Uh, It says, therefore, or there, I'm sorry, there he spent three months And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return from Macedonia. Now, something's going on here that you might lose because it's just naming places again. Let me ask you this. Why is Paul wanting to go to Syria? I thought we were getting applause there for a moment for Syria. Um, Why was he going to Syria? Does anybody remember what, what was in Syria? Antioch, thank you. Syrian Antioch. That was Paul's home church. And I've, I've stressed this throughout the book of Acts as we've gone through. He was called there. He was commissioned. He was sent out. He was supported. He was prayed for. He goes out on the first missionary journey, he and Barnabas. And what do they do? They come back to Syrian Antioch. He goes out on the second missionary journey. And he takes Silas that time. And what does he do when he gets done with the second missionary journey? He goes back to Syrian Antioch. What does he try to do here? He doesn't succeed at it, by the way. You'll find that out. and You may already know that. But what is his heart? What is his intention? He wants to go home. He wants to get back to his home church. Why? Why? Was it just to bless them? I mean, of course he brought blessing and encouragement to them. But the truth of the matter is, he's recharging his batteries. He's going back to home. He's going back to the people who love him most, who sent him and pray for him. And, and, and he's going to drink that in. He's going to recharge all of his batteries. So here's the question. Are we better than the guy of whom you know, half the, the books of the New Testament have his name on them? Paul needed the church. He needed the church. 
He loved the church. It wasn't a drudge. It wasn't, a, oh, do I have to get up? And He loved them. He, wa- he wanted to be there with all his heart. You know, I think on an intuitive level, we should know this truth. That is that we need the church. Have you ever watched a horror movie? Anyone ever? That's a, you know, rare genre I know. There's usually that scene where there's like six teenagers out in the woods somewhere. Why? We don't know. They're just hanging out in a cabin waiting to get gobbled up. And, uh, and then there's that scene where the one guy or gal is separated from the group. Oh, that's going to go well, right? And then the music, you know, starts to starts the tritone, as it's called, with the diminished fifth and the augmented fourth. Um, and it starts to play, and you're like, oh, yeah, they're toast. That, that person alone, they're toast. We, we need to know this. We need to understand that. We need to get it into our habit of thinking and our habit of doing that we seek and understand our need for that encouragement. You need it, brother and sister. If you're in Christ, if you know him and you're in him, then you need the church. It's not something optional. It's not something, eh, take it or leave it. Ah, oh, well, no. You need the body. We need that desperately. Thirdly, encourage one another in the church. Verse 5 and 6, a uh, group arrives at Troas. You remember Troas? I won't go into that, but that was where Paul saw the Macedonian vision. Now they're kind of working their way back the other way. And it's a port city. Um, and, uh, yeah. I didn't mention it earlier, but Paul had tried to um, take a, a ship initially to Syria. Then he found out there was a plot to kill him, and uh, so it was coming from the Jewish people. So he didn't, he, he didn't really want to get on a pilgrim ship with a bunch of Jewish people all heading to Jerusalem. That just didn't, that just didn't seem like a, a, a good plan. Uh, so he stayed on land. They, they, end up, they all converge at Troas as the others, I think, travel by sea. He, he travels by land. They end up at Troas together. Look at verse 7 through 8. On the first day of the week... When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with him, intending to depart on the next day. And he proclaimed his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. What I want you to see right now uh, that I think is important, a little off theme, a little off the encouragement part, but I just think it's something to see and recognize because it's here and it's unique. Um, we, we are in a very transitional time in the whole book of Acts, aren't we? So, such, a, such a great transition from Christ preaching the gospel, his death, burial, resurrection, Pentecost, the church going, moving out from first a, a completely Jewish organization into then the Gentile world and bringing in the Gentiles and all of the rest. This is, this is happening all in about 50-something A.D., what we're looking at today. Mid-50s, we're about 15 years away from the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. All the old forms of Judaism attached to the sacrifice, the priests, all of the service of the temple, all of that in 15 years is going to be gone. You know what else is gone? Being welcomed in the synagogue. For a time, Paul is able to go to the synagogue and preach Christ and, and have a good conversation about Christ and still worship in the synagogue, but that, the, the Christian, Christians are going to be thrown out of the synagogue. Paul has a foot in two camps at this point during this transition. I mean, he definitely understands the gospel, don't get me wrong, but, but he, like, he still keeps a vow. That's a very Old Testament kind of thing to do. You know, he's trying to get back for the Feast of Unleavened Bread also, just kind of, that's kind of tied to the whole temple calendar and whatnot. But in verse 7, and this is critically important to see, in verse 7 we have the first authentic, clear 
picture of the early church meeting as the church would meet from that point forward. It's really the new wine and new wineskins at this point. Let me tell you, let me, let me show you this. Um, so they're not meeting on the Sabbath, which was the Jewish custom. Here they are meeting on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. What day is that, boys and girls? Sunday. You have the church meeting on a Sunday. And most commentators agree that when it talks about the Lord's table in verse or, or the breaking of bread in verse 7, it's talking about communion. So they're, they're coming together on Sunday. They're celebrating the Lord's table. And then Paul is preaching. He's preaching and teaching um, throughout the night. So what we're seeing here is genuine, authentic Christian worship beginning in earnest. Uh, it's, it's that sort of transition. Now, if you were to say maybe they met on Sunday because uh, Paul had a limited time there, which I thought, well, that might be an objection someone might bring. You'll notice that Luke tells us that they were there for seven days. If the church wanted to meet on the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, the seventh day, totally could have done it. But they're meeting instead on the first day of the week on Sunday. From the earliest generation of the New Covenant Church, what we have here are all of the pieces coming together. They needed this. Paul and his fellow gospel workers needed the coming together in the word, in the table, in the fellowship. They needed that encouragement. Every now and then we, uh, we need to ask ourselves about our priorities. Think about the people gathered at Troas. The Romans had not marked Sunday off as a day off from work. They were all working a regular job. This Sunday was for them no different than, than it, it would have been um, you know, if it had been Monday. You think back to the people at Ephesus and how they gave up their lunch hour, their siesta time to hear Paul preach. These people are there. They're, they're hungry. They've worked. They've worked all day, and yet they're there just drinking it, and they have that strong uh, need for the fellowship. That was their priority. I love that passion. I love that drive. Do you think we have that today? That kind of passion for the church, for the assembling of ourselves together? I, uh, I told Colin I was going to use him as an illustration. Colin, is he still there? Yeah, he's hiding behind Matt. Um, just hard to do, but he managed it. So, uh, but no, Colin, Colin spent all summer overseas doing missions work. And then he came back, and, he, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to be back for a couple weeks. And I'm like, cool, we'll see a lot of colonies. like, nope, I'm going to go out to Solid Rock and, uh, and work for two weeks out at Solid Rock Bible Camp. It's like, what kind of glutton? Are, are you just looking for all the blessings? Is that, is that, that's, what, that's what it's about. But I love that heart. I love that heart. I know that's not quite the same thing as talking about being together as a church. But, but man, the passion for that, the, 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 the sense that, you know what, I can't get enough of this stuff. I can't get enough if Paul talks, you know, past midnight or whatever the case may be. You're here today. I don't want to beat you up. That would be silly because you've made that a priority. So maybe, maybe what I really should do is give you a gold star. Except that's not, that's not what it's about, is it? We're not in here trying to get gold stars or brownie points. We just understand this is what the Christian heart needs. We need the one another. We need to be there for the encouragement of the body. Do it for the glory of Christ. Do it for your own sake. Um, don't lose heart in that. Finally, encourage the church in love. This is where the story gets kind of fun. Uh, Eutychus, man. Funny, funny boy. 
<laughs> what, a, what a crazy little camper he is. You know, when it says that Paul prolonged his speech um, till midnight, it doesn't mean that he waited till midnight. It means that they started around the dinner hour and Paul had been preaching. Probably a little Q&A thing back and forth, but it had been going all the way, all evening, all the way until midnight. Now, imagine your name's Eutychus and you're a lad somewhere between the ages of 8 and 14. That's what the word indicates would be the range. So he could be on the low side, could be eight years old, he could be as high as 14. But yeah, young guy, no child labor laws. He probably had worked all day long in the sun. And now he comes in there and Paul's using all kinds of big words that are probably hard for him to follow. They're up on the third floor of this building, whether it's a rich man's home or whether it's a tenement or something like that, we don't really know. But Luke kind of gives us a little bit of a picture of it, right? There's upper room, three stories up, lamp light. What does that mean? That means the lamp. You picture that. You know, you got, it's dark outside. There's just enough lamplight. It's flickering. It's undulating. I've got three people falling asleep now. And he's like, man, I got I to gotta get some air. Pro- probably that's what he's thinking. So he goes up and he's sitting at that third floor window trying to get it. It's open. He's trying to get some fresh air. And Paul, who's known for being long-winded, is just giving them the whole business. Paul is proud of that. He'll say that to the Ephesian elders. We'll see that uh, next time I'm in uh, Acts in two weeks. But, uh, yeah, he just he's giving them everything he's got. And Poor Eutychus, right? I mean, he's, his body clock is telling him that he's about three weeks past his bedtime. He's, uh, and then all at once he falls completely asleep and thus falls completely dead on the pavement outside. Yeah, the boy's dead. He really is dead. Seriously dead. Luke tells us he's dead. You're like, are you sure he's dead? Because Paul says he's alive. No, he was dead when he fell. When he hit the ground, that is. He... He was dead, kind of like the, the young girl, the Jairus' daughter that Jesus rose, raised from the dead. You know, he says, she's not dead, she's asleep, but he's talking metaphorically there. She was dead. Eutychus is dead, and they all come outside, and Paul sees the, the, the young man there, and, and he does kind of an Elijah, 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 sort of a prophetic thing where he goes over, and he bends over the boy's body, and he takes him up in his arms, and he says, do not be alarmed. For his life is still in him. This is a resurrection. This is a resurrection. Luke was a physician. He knew the kid was dead. He's telling us, in effect, that by an apostolic miracle, there's the word, of the highest order, he raised Eutychus to life. And then everyone was so relieved, and Paul was so embarrassed from taking so long that he just sent them home. Hey, you're all asleep, you just go home, right? No. He's like, okay, we got our second wind. Who's, who's feeling a little jazzed right now? Boy, that gets the, you know, losing somebody and then raising them to life really gets the adrenaline flowing. Um, I, I don't know that he said that. But, but he takes them back inside and he keeps preaching. It says, and when Paul had gone up, this is after raising him from the dead. It's after midnight now. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. And so departed. After killing a man by preaching, <laughs> Paul gives it another six or seven hours of solid preaching.
preaching. I mean, that's, that's a, he really, yeah, Paul didn't back off. Um, you know, given the fact that we meet every single week, Paul had a one-off chance there, so I, you, you got to kind of understand and for, forgive him for that. But uh, given the fact that, A, we meet every week, and B, I can't raise you from the dead if you fall over, you know, dead at my preaching. So I promise I will never go over three or four hours. That is my absolute top, you know, a third of the time that Paul preached. So, he's good. <laughs> yeah. All right. So where's the love that I was talking about here at this point? Where do you see love involved? It says, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. I believe you can say they were comforted in love. And I say that because it is love that is operating through the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, toward Eutychus and toward the, the, the fellow Christians there. He doesn't want them to, to, to end on this kind of a note. And he, and he exerts and uses the, the, the gifts that God has given him. You know, when you think about the fruits of the Spirit, what's the first fruit? Love. And, and some people think of that as kind of the, 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 the main, you know, primary uh, gift out of which then, or, or, or fruit from which all the others flow. And I think there, there's truth in that. The, the gifts of the Spirit are an expression of, of Christ's love for us as we express them to one another and build up one another using our gifts. All of the fruits of the Spirit are intended out of love. And Paul is simply putting his apostolic gift to use. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. How, do, how, does, how are we to build one another up? The book of Ephesians tells us that. So it's each, each, each part, each of part of the body doing its part. That's how we are to build each other up. And, it, and to Timothy, he says, The aim of our charge is love and issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. The reason we're encouraging you to make the priority of being in church and being there is so that you can use your gifts to love one another. That others can feel love and you can feel love and you can experience the work of Christ through his body in that way. We are called to that kind of, that kind of a mutual fellowship and that mutual love. If you're not in church, you can't, you can't experience that. And when I say in church, you're the church, but when we gather together, you know what I'm saying. That's where we have the chance and the opportunity to know that, that vital use of God's gifts and God's fruit that he gives to the believer. Paul could use his gift of preaching and teaching to encourage the believer. He could use his gifts as an apostle to raise them. But he also, you know, I guess you could say this. This is a theological point that, that one could ponder, but could Paul have chosen not to use his gifts in the sovereignty of God, that's just an interesting question, but, you know, Jesus called him. Jesus told him what he would suffer. He sent him on the way, but, man, Paul is like the energizer bunny. He could have given about half that amount of effort and still done a lot of good. He just keeps giving. He keeps taking that gift that God has given and that calling that God has given, and he keeps using it in love for the encouragement of the church. That is his habit. Here's the question. How has God gifted you? How might God want you to use the gifts that he's given, the fruits that he's given, in the encouragement of the one another's within the body of Christ? Just having fellowship, just being here is huge. 
Like that's, that's just seeing your smiling face, just, just greeting one another. That, that is huge. That is part of the building up of the body. But then ask yourself, well, one, one step beyond it, where, where has God gifted me? Do I have a gift of mercy? Do I have a gift of, of giving? Do I have a gift of teaching? Or whatever it might be, how am I serving the body of Christ? Do it for yourself. Do it for the church. Do it for your children. If you have young children, this is the time. If you want them to see where your priorities are, now is the time. Now is the time for them to see that. If, you, if they don't see it in action, all the lip service you give it will not end up making a bit of difference in the end. Yeah, prioritize the body. I'd like to encourage you today, if you don't know Christ, um, to turn to him and believe upon him and be saved. Hear the gospel. Let it fall on a receptive heart. Respond to him. And not only will you be saved eternally, not only will you be brought into union with Christ and fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit and have joy and all of these things, you will have a new family. And that family will be your church, your church family. And uh, wherever that might be, um, if you're not a resident of Great Bend and you're going elsewhere, make sure you've got that body uh, there to love on and be loved by. And if you're here in Great Bend, we would welcome you. We would love to include you here in this church family and encourage you. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we want to be encouragers. We want to follow the biblical example, not just out of a sense of duty, but, but out of that, that, just that passion that, that we see, particularly in young people sometimes, and, and, and that, that energy, Lord. We, we, we can get tired. We can get jaded. We can have a bad experience here or there and, and uh, let that somehow discourage us, Lord. But, but we pray that, that through the, the power of your Spirit, and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we might be there to encourage one another. And I pray, Lord, that if there's someone that doesn't know you today, that they, hearing the gospel, would turn and believe in Christ and be included in your church today. And we ask it in his name. Amen.